But yeah, that went super well. I mean, I think he's a nice guy. He he. I like how he answers the, the with the perfect amount of time. His answers aren't too long. They aren't too short. One of the problems I have with interviewing academics is just like they don't fucking know where to stop. They don't. Fucking know. Yeah, it's like a ten minute presentation, and then you're like, well. Now I have to kind of go back and say, like, at the beginning of your presentation, you said this. And I know it's like eight minutes ago, but let's talk about that. Right. It's really kind of annoying, actually. Um, OK, give me a second. I'll just record a quick presentation. Sure. Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. Uh, a lot of you have been looking down south, I'm sure, and thinking what the hell is going on there. Uh, and well, most of them are probably are down south. Sorry to cut you off there, buddy. That's true. We should keep this in. <laughs> yes. Well, for those of you who aren't in uh, snowy Canada. Uh, we actually have a very special guest for you today. Uh, this is Greg Sargent. He is a Washington Post uh, opinion columnist who writes the Plum Line, and he discourses a lot on the subject of post-liberalism or national conservatism and liberal egalitarianism. So thanks a lot for being on the show, Greg. Great to have you. Great. There you go. That's and, and I guess he never actually said thank you, but I'm sure that will, that will suffice. We recorded this afterwards, uh, but anyway, because we wanted to use every single second. Uh, so, Greg, a lot of your writing is focused on the emergence of these post-liberal or national conservative movements. Uh, and I stress the term movement because one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is the kind of theoretical foundations um, of this kind of politics. But we never really get into, you know, the J.D. Vance's, the Tucker Carlson's, uh, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. So can you tell us a little bit about what this new movement looks like uh, and what kind of political support it's gaining in the United States and maybe elsewhere? Well, the new right is really, in some respects, a rebellion against the Republican Party, isn't it? Um, one of the crucial things to me about the new right is that they, they explicitly uh, say that the Republican Party has failed to uh, aggressively deploy the state to fight the culture wars. Uh, culture wars is, of course, a phrase that I think is a euphemism, but it is awfully useful so as a shorthand so i'm going to kind of stick to it if that's okay with you guys um, 100 you know um what we're seeing with people like ron DeSantis right now is a concerted effort to show what um it looks like when state power is deployed in service of uh fighting cultural enemies and bringing cultural enemies to heal so I talked to a number of these new right thinkers and, and they've elaborated fairly, you know, sophisticated versions of this, uh, if, if that's the right word. Uh, by contrast, what you've got in people like Ron DeSantis and, and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and even increasingly mainstream Republicans really is kind of a, a, a moment by moment, almost like a Fox News friendly uh, effort to pick and choose the cultural enemy of the moment and kind of use the state in whatever haphazard way they can to go after them. I thought it was really telling the other day when J.D. Vance essentially said, what we really need is a debathification of the administrative state. We need, to, we need a purging of the administrative state. I take that as a very clear signal that the next Republican president, particularly if it's someone like DeSantis, as he's, you know, could very well be, will deploy the administrative state aggressively against cultural enemies. And I think on some level, many Republicans, for all their other faults, genuinely are uncomfortable with this. So I was I was curious, you know, I was looking at some of your tweets and, and some of your writings. Um, and I think one of the observations you sort of make about the new right is it seems like they're paying more lip service to, I guess, progressively economic policies or at least like 
but uh, I, I I detected some skepticism in that it doesn't seem like they actually concretely like they'll pay lip service it seems like but maybe not actually like endorse specific like broad measures like I don't know it varies I think uh, by like whatever post liberal or like you know integralist the different one the, the the variety of these new right figures but I guess what's your sense of the of the extent to which they actually are interested in concretely economically progressive agendas and how much of it is just really about culture uh, cultural change. So, so I think we should give them some credit on this, and I've actually caught some flack on this front, but I think there's like a legitimate effort on the part of many new right people, including some in Congress, like I guess Marco Rubio is in this vein, um, although he's a bit of a complicated figure. But anyway, I think we, we should actually acknowledge that they have a vision of markets and distributive outcomes as being in some sense created by government, socially created. And and that's really that really is a genuine break, I think, from what you might call everyday libertarianism, which is like the kind of crude worldview that Republicans often use to justify plutocracy, right? Um, and so, you know, another thing we should get credit them for is that they genuinely do not think GDP is a measure of national health. I think that's really true. Um, now, where it starts to break down, at least for me, is what they do think can be used. Uh, what they do, what they do hold up as goals in terms of, uh, you, you know, reconfiguring markets to achieve social outcomes. Again, giving them a little credit, right? They do agree with progressives that you can reconfigure markets and you can change market rules and you can use politics and government to achieve other social outcomes. But for me, this is where the separation starts. They seem to really focus it on things like the traditional family, like in using the state to incentivize the traditional family. They have a vision there of that as a human good and something that's essential to human flourishing. But like I asked in one of my pieces, you know, if we're going to use the state, if we're gonna reconfigure markets to achieve outcomes that promote human flourishing, why not other bases for human flourishing that are also fundamental, like universal health care or much more in the way of education? And, and I've actually struggled with this, and I'd love to hear from you guys on it. What, 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 what I tend to think is going on with them is on some level, they still have a hierarchical view. On some level, they don't take moral equality seriously. And that, to me, is where the separation might lie. Yeah, and I would make the argument that that's always been emblematic of the political right generally, uh, and even the libertarian right. And there is a libertarian left, so we'll put that aside. Uh, you know, for those of you who are on it, you know, I'm not knocking you. You're in the United States, so for instance, uh, in the mid 2010s, you saw the emergence of what are sometimes called bordertarians, right? Uh, people who would argue that yeah, we want domestic uh, free markets. But that doesn't mean that we should have a free market and labor and we should have a strong state that will enforce the border. Uh, and you see a reflection of this hierarchical worldview there uh, that we should have free markets, but only some people should be able to benefit from the freedom that that allows. Not everyone, because there are some people who are ethnically uh, or even racially superior to others. You know, I'm thinking of somebody like Stefan Molyneux, for example. Right. But you know, on the kind of post-liberal point, uh, I think that what you're saying is absolutely true. Right. That uh, what they're trying to do is use the state. Uh, not to corrode traditional and other forms of hierarchies, uh, but to establish the right kind of hierarchical organization, the one that they think the market is incapable of actually creating of its own merits. 
And I think that that's where they really differ from leftists, wouldn't you say? I, I've been a big fan of your points on that front, your continued insistence on saying, look, you know, they're still, you know, they're still just searching. It, 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 I, it, I mean, you, you know how to articulate this better than I do. You have a much, obviously, a much deeper theoretical grounding. But it does seem like on some level, what they just want to do is, is create new hierarchies. Um, maybe they don't see them as in the same way, you know, as, as you know, your, ever your everyday libertarian plutocrat does. But, you know, they, they certainly don't think that state power should be used to dismantle the formation of hierarchies that result from the private sector. Maybe that's the way to, to think about it. I mean, they would dispute that, by the way. I think that's worth pointing out. Like, if you, if you argue with someone like Nate Copeland, What's his name? Nate, Nate Hockman, who's sort of become a spokesperson, the young kind of, he's like, he's like a really amazingly precocious guy. And he's very smart. I don't know. We, if he we actually collaborated. Uh, I don't know if he liked my work on postmodern conservatism and we did it back and forth on that. So I'd love to see that. Anyway, like he would, he would dispute that, right? I, I, I believe on one of the Know Your Enemy podcasts, um, he, he was a guest and I think he seemed open to some sort of exchange of um, a policy where you would uh, do away with um, uh, endowments for certain types of four-year uh, degrees and channel some of that into uh, vocational school, which, by the way, is another way of maintaining a certain type of hierarchy, I think. But that's, you know, something we could talk about elsewhere. Well, but he seemed open to the idea of um, pairing that with some kind of minimum wage hike. What, what I think maybe the most fundamental thing is that there isn't really a discernible vision of distributive justice at the core of, of what they do. And, and I think they would probably admit that, right? Because conservatives tend, as a rule, to be skeptical of distributive justice schemes, don't they? I mean, that's something I'm sure you guys both know better than I do. No, for sure. I mean, I think they are uh, skeptical because I think just emphasizing distribution by itself, in fact, I think some of the critics from both the left and right in like the political theory world is that like just emphasizing um, distributive justice like doesn't really tell you that much about like the community. So from a left, it like doesn't tell you that much about like solidarity, the civic virtues in the society. And I think for the right and for the for the new right, it's like distributive justice tells you nothing about the kind of values that that society is going to have, or at least like, you know, family values, commitments to like self-discipline. Right. Which are all kind of like so I think that makes uh, a lot of sense that that, that they're not going to just be purely interested um, in distributive justice. I was curious about also, you know, you you write about how the new right also has a tendency and fixation on kind of like narratives of catastrophe. Right. So a lot of a, a lot of their concern with the way that and their newfound critiques of, of capitalism is the way it's eroding these kinds of traditional values. And there's this like narrative of catastrophe. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And also, I'm curious whether you think there's an analogous kind of narrative of catastrophe on the left or if there's something else, if you had thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, what I've been calling it is, and I don't think I came up with this, uh, is cultural catastrophism, which I think is really sort of a very dangerous tendency. Um, you know, when when you I thought a really telling thing the other day was J.D. Vance uh, discussing his um, his his uh, his um, justification for supporting Trump. Right. So the way he talks about it is, OK, you, you guys, just for the benefit of your viewers, 
J.D. Vance is running for Senate in Ohio. He's running in a Republican primary. He's kind of the, you know, Trumpist, pop, quote-unquote, populist, nationalist candidate. Author of Hillbilly Elegy, for those who don't know. Yes, right, right, right. And so, but in 2016, he was a different person, and he criticized Trump pretty aggressively. Uh, I think he described Trump, or at least his type of politics, as cultural heroin uh, for the white working class, right? Which, you know, is a language that people like, you and you and me can can relate to and then all of a sudden he he becomes a trumpist and there's been a lot of talk about how he's you know been an opportunist but i i think that we should take it a little more seriously if you look closely at the arguments he's made what he says is well okay i i i didn't understand that trump was going to open all of our eyes to uh the corrupt rot at the core of elite liberal institutions and, and, you know, so he treats Trump as kind of like this providential figure who's ca caused the scales to fall from his eyes, you know, and, and kind of created almost a divine revelation of what's really been around him, the, the kind of evil rot that's all around him. And, and so once you go down that road, right, pretty much anything is justified in response to this type of cultural emergency that, that he suddenly senses in every institution and around every corner in every classroom. And so, you know, um, that's what I'm talking about, really. It's really just a short leap from there to just saying, oh, well, our, you know, our elections are corrupt, um, right? The deep state is corrupt. And so when the deep state says that Russia's trying to overturn our election, it's just baloney. It's just elite corruption at work. Um, when, you know, when people demand that an end to disinformation about our elections, that's more of the same. And so uh, there's no actual kind of uh, set of, set of, I don't know, guardrails at, at, at any point once you've sort of accepted that the entire superstructure of everything is rotten to its core. And that's the that's what I mean by the kind of cultural catastrophism. And, and they're pretty open about it, which is kind of odd. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the odder things uh, that you've seen uh, on the political right ever since Trump's uh, kind of rise to power is that they've all become kind of implicit Hegelians, right? Hegel had this argument that sometimes an individual might seem deeply deficient uh, in some respects, but nonetheless, the cunning of reason was his phrase, might use them for ends that then themselves wouldn't have chosen. Uh, and you see people make these kind of claims about Trump all the time, right? That, yeah, he's boorish. Yeah, he might have deep personal flaws. Uh, but nevertheless, Providence has selected him as a kind of individual who's going to engage in this world historical overcoming of, you know, the decadence decay of liberalism. Uh, and usually associated with this kind of future minded triumphalism is this deep sense that, you know, the country is decayed, that this is our last chance, uh, that everything's falling apart. Right. And, and didn't, didn't actually quickly, didn't uh, didn't Steve Bannon say that about Trump? Uh, actually, Greg, I'm curious if you ever talked to Benjamin Teitelbaum. Uh, do you know who that is? He wrote this book, The War for Eternity. No, I don't. No. Oh, it's it's so good. Like he he's this ethnographer from the University of Colorado Boulder who ended up scoring like 20 hours from hassling Steve Bannon of just like interviews with him and just hung around with him for like hours. And he wrote this amazing book about like this, the theoretical underpinnings of Bannon uh, and like traditionalism and like that whole like really far right wing and like Dugan, you know, like which is in, in the news now more from like Russia and stuff. So yeah, uh, you just Matt, what you were saying reminded me of Title Bomb telling us about how Bannon, I think he says in that book, 
thought that Trump is the vehicle of this like broader cultural, this like this historical necessity of, of like, you know, uh, some sort of new right emerging. Right. And I think so. You see this with J.D. Vance saying, you know, strip the administrative state of all liberals and turn it loose on on, you know, woke corporations. And, and you know, when when Steve Bannon, I don't know if you listen to his podcast, but I recommend if you can stomach it, you know, listen, listen a little bit because I've had all the worst. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's really it's 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 really raw right wing insurgency stuff. It's yeah, it's it's it takes it as a given that that future election outcomes that are that where where they lose will be subject to, to nullification by by any means necessary. I think they really do take it as a given. It's just stated as essentially as fact. No, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's deeply disturbing, of course, about all these movements uh, is. Many of us predicted that they might have authoritarian strands uh, as soon as Trump was elected, um, but none of us quite expected that it would be so spectacularly displayed uh, as you saw in January 2021, right? Where there was an insurrection and it was backed by major figures in the administration. And while there was a little bit of initial pushback from the GOP, everyone kind of got on board with it, uh, including Vance and others. So can you tell us a little bit about why you think that they are entitled uh, to kind of adopt this approach uh, towards democratic procedures. What is it about elections that make them unfair if their preferred candidate doesn't win? Because that would seem to just be the operative assumption of democracy, right? You know, think about this Madisonian ethos that one of the reasons why everyone will be content with a democracy is if your guy didn't win today, well, there'll always be tomorrow, right? Yeah, I mean, I think something very complicated is going on with the Republicans, and unfortunately, the way it's discussed in the in the mainstream press tends to kind of slather it in euphemism and stuff. It, it, if you think about it, it so as an example of that, and this will get around to, to where I think you want me to go, um, over and over we hear, oh, Republican candidates are running on the big lie, right? You know, they're loyal to Trump. And, and that just completely misstates the real story of what's happening, right? So what you're hearing from many Republican candidates across the country, yes, they, they do have to pledge fealty to the big lie. But what's actually happening is they're running on an implicit vow to be willing to use whatever procedural power they can, and perhaps more, to maximally contest future election losses, right? And so I think to answer your question, it's not that they sort of say, oh, well, we're justified in doing this. It's sort of in a more shadowy place, right? They don't sort of say openly, all right, well, we will overturn the next election loss. They don't say it that way. They usually use kind of coded language that keeps it very nebulous and sort of deliberately so, so that they can kind of appeal to swing voters as well without, you know, Without, but so they can avoid alienating those voters. Take David Perdue in Georgia, right? This is a really, really, really good example of this. He is Trump's candidate in the Republican gubernatorial primary against incumbent, Republic, uh, incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Now, Brian Kemp is being challenged for the explicit reason that he refused to steal the election for Trump in 2020. And David Perdue doesn't say, our elections don't count, I will steal the next election. He doesn't say it that way. What he says is, Brian Kemp let you down. He didn't fight, right? Um, and then when he's asked directly, would you have certified uh, Trump, Joe Biden's electors in 2020? He says, no, 
right? Because there was vote fraud. And so it just becomes this shadowy set of claims where what they're really saying is, you know, I will maximally use whatever procedural tools are available at my disposal and use lies about voter fraud to justify it in a way that these other squish Republicans didn't. And, and so it, there's not actually any kind of real justification other than the sort of invented phantasm of fraud. But if you analyze it closely, it's a clear statement of intent and it's almost never remarked on in the press, which is, you know, a real problem, I think. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that us liberals really find difficult when it comes to dialoguing or critiquing uh, people who hold these views because they are slippery. Uh, and what you can sometimes find is if you make a point that they're unable to argue against empirically, they'll just find a way to use that as further vindication for their viewpoints, right? I mean, I found this about January 6th. Uh, people would start off by saying, you know, it didn't happen or it wasn't as bad as they said. And then if it was as bad as people claim, then they'd say, well, Antifa was there, right? And they're the ones who really riled up. So even though they're seeding that one point, they're using that as a kind of further circular way of vindicating their viewpoint. Uh, and, you know, this is all very strange and people have called it a lot of different things, including me. Um, but, you know, I I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about where the roots of this come from? Because uh, I think that's what a lot of us are really wondering, uh, looking from, you know, the outside in. Uh, and people have diagnosed different kind of points where Trumpism got its seeds uh, or post-liberalism or national conservatism, whatever you want to call it. Some people will say, well, there's the Bush administration. You know, there's this famous argument that we create our own reality now. Uh, that, you know, various people, you know, in the war on terror used to kind of espouse. Some people say Newt Gingrich, other people say Reagan. Where do you think it began uh, and why did it evolve the way it did? The Gingrich moment strikes me as really important because that's when politics became a national total war, maybe in a bit of a different way. Um, you know, even liberals have a bit of a nostalgized, you know, a soft and soft and fuzzy view of the Reagan years, I think. I mean, I, I'm a millennial, right? So, you know, I, I, I buy into 80s nostalgia like anyone else. Like, yeah, so. yeah, right, right. I mean, they're like, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's a component of 80s nostalgia. I don't, I, you know, having lived through the 80s in, in, in New York City and going to school in the Bronx, um, I, don't, I don't know why people nostalgize it. But anyway, um, uh, anyway, so what I was going to say is that, yes, I think Gingrich is... Um, a very key turning point. He he teaches Republicans that everything is max is total war, that that the Democratic enemy must be portrayed in the absolute most lurid and menacing and hyperbolic and insane way possible, and that it should be a concerted strategy, and and so forth. Um, but I also think that a lot of this is rooted in the um, kind of escalation of manipulation of uh, the, the rules and procedures of democracy that really started to pick up steam after Obama, right? Um, people kind of forget this, but the 2010 elections in which Republicans won the House, they also won, you know, dozens of state legislatures across the country. And it's kind of at that moment where you start to see a really escalated effort to gerrymander and to suppress votes and to do that sort of thing um, that that I think leads down to the, the present moment in the kind of following way, right? At that point, Republicans were openly terrified of demographic change, right? They were essentially saying, okay, the Obama presidency has shown us that we are on the losing end of this demographic battle. And 
you know, we've really got to step up the, the procedural warfare. And of course, they did that, right? They did it very successfully, and, and Democrats got caught napping. And by the way, we're still dealing with the fallout of that right now in, in some terrible ways. But, you know, anyway, what happened was little by little, you know, the use of things like voter fraud became more and more entrenched as an excuse to fight procedural warfare in maximal ways. And I actually talked to a Republican pollster about this who thought his party was going crazy on it. Um, and he essentially told me, look, when I poll, um, it's in my book, by the way. Um, he said, when, when, when I poll Republican voters on this stuff, what I find is they are starting to think that, uh, that voter suppression is already a rearguard response to a massive cheating scheme that's being leveled against them in which Democrats use government policies to give money to undeserving people to buy their votes. And so, you know, Republican voters think, oh, well, if they're going to fight that way, we're going to fight our way. And so you can see that coming right down to the present. Uh, Trump comes in and he makes the whole uh, voter fraud argument much more explicit. He starts to say straight out, he singles out urban centers as the centers for fraud in a much more visceral and open way. And there you have a pretty straight up racial argument, right? As opposed to before it was just, okay, voter fraud, you know, demographic change. He's saying, you know, the cities are stealing the elections from you out there in non-cosmopolitan America. And then that really leads down to kind of this cultural catastrophism that I'm talking about. And, you know, right now we're, they're literally, it's, it's crossed from using voter fraud uh, to justify voter suppression to now using the lie of a stolen election to justify voter suppression in the name of election integrity. And so you can just kind of see it kind of torquing up little by little kind of out of those moments. I'm curious, do you have a sense for kind of like how much these new right movements are like influenced by these new right intellectuals, right? Because we have the JD, the movements, but then we've got like the Vermules, which I think maybe you've written or at least tweeted about common good constitutionalism and probably like looked at some of Matt's work on 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 his Matt always reviewing the conservative books. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the 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 Patrick Deneens and stuff. Like, so do you, do you think that they're actually like reading like the, the actual like political actors like like J.D. Vance and them are familiar with their work? Or is it just kind of like two independently developing fields of the right wing that are just like uh, developing kind of independently of each other because they both have a broad sense? Or is there actual like connection to, to invoke our colleague? Uh, do ideas matter? You know? Yeah, no, I think I think like to take these guys seriously again, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think J.D. Vance reads the journals. He pays close attention to what Claremont Institute is doing and so forth. I, I mean, um, I forget what the name of Gladden Pappin's journal is called. It's either American Purpose or American Affairs, one of those. Um, it's a it's sort of really a new right um, Gladden Pappen, you guys know, he's sort of in the integralist camp and he's a serious guy in his own way. I mean, I, there's a new, I think there's a Rutledge handbook of post-liberalism out there that was edited by Stephen Holmes and some others. And it's, it's a, it's an interesting book and Gladden Pappen has a chapter making the case from his side. And so this is a serious guy and his journal, I think is read by people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley. I, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that there's that they take this intellectual movement extremely seriously. I just, 
to me, I, again, what break, where it breaks down for me is is in in, in the in, in some of the failings we were talking about earlier. They just don't they don't seem to have a real economic vision that is that takes distributive justice or moral equality seriously. And and that, that's where I think you and I, you guys, and and people like me really part ways from them. But I do think they're serious about it. It's an interesting question. Maybe you guys have thoughts on this. If you think about the idea of going after college endowments, four-year college stuff to, to fund vocational school, what I, and, and Matt, this is like your, this is your topic, right? Um, uh, dignified self-authorship. When I look at that, right, I see hierarchy being maintained because they're not taking the idea seriously from of that moral equality should lead us to say, you get the resources to realize yourself, right? They just sort of say, okay, well, you know, four-year colleges are indoctrinating people, vocational work is, is a good option, it'll, keep, it'll create communities that we think are stable. That's not taking moral liberal moral equality seriously, is it? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, so just to say something about this and then, um, so j just to very briefly, I think people sometimes ponder why it is that the right simultaneously has this real attraction uh, to its own intellectuals while advocating uh, for anti-intellectual kinds of rhetoric elsewhere, right? You think about Trump's comment about, I love the undereducated, right? You know, they're my people, that kind of thing. This has really deep roots going back to even someone like Edmund Burke. Uh, but, you know, the point of it was never really made that explicit uh, until you get to somebody like Roger Scruton in his book, The Meaning of Conservatism, where he overtly says that there is something admirable from a conservative standpoint about what he called, and I quote, unthinking people, right? Uh, those who accept the burdens that life bears, uh, opposes upon them without seeking to lodge blame uh, where they have little chance of recourse. Uh, and I think you see this in this kind of emphasis on vocational schools. There's this idea that there's nothing wrong with you getting an education as long as it's an education that leads to you being, broadly speaking, uncritical uh, of the political and traditional institutions that you inhabit. Um, and so to the extent that there is a movement on things like access to post-secondary education, it's probably going to take this form. You're never going to see conservatives sitting there being like, we should fund all kinds of people who are going to be coming out of university with all kinds of different opinions about how things should be shored, like should be um, changed. It's not what they're really aspiring to. Uh, and to the extent that they're looking to kind of train an intellectual cadre, it's going to be an intellectual cadre that more or less replicates or parrots uh, the kind of viewpoints that they think are acceptable. But I mean, this is what I kind of wanted to get. This actually gets at uh, my final question for you, uh, which is, what do you think that we can do as liberals or leftists uh, to confront these movements? Because they've been very appealing. Uh, they definitely have a kind of intellectual backbone to them, uh, which sometimes we don't appreciate. Uh, and while we kind of got a bit of a recourse uh, in 2020 with Biden's election, a lot of us are worried that it is just that. It's a, rec a reprieve or a recourse and that something worse is going to be coming down the line. So what can we do? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure this is a great answer. It might be kind of too overly theoretical, but my sort of sense is that what liberalism can do is kind of return to the tradition of egalitarian liberalism as a response to right-wing populism. Um, it seems to me that if we return, if we take seriously the idea uh, that moral equality requires an investment of societal, social, and economic resources in the ability of people to realize themselves, then we kind of tackle 
some of the very liabilities about liberalism that right-wing populism is exploiting. You know, for instance, the kind of uh, efforts to entrench meritocracy that they constantly, and I think, somewhat legitimately attack, right? Um, now, I think we're in a very bad moment for the following reason. We had a shot here at something that would move in that direction fairly dramatically in Biden's Build Back Better agenda. It would have invested, you know, much more money in education, healthcare, and and so forth. And, you know, <laughs> that dying um, is really, really a, a problem for, for, for liberals, I think, because that was kind of our crack, right? I mean, that was our... Our, that this is our crack at rehabilitating liberalism along the lines that I think we all agree it should be. And, and you know, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. Like, there's sort of a Pollyannish thing, way of thinking about this, which says something along the lines of, you know, well, right-wing populists are just exploiting the fact that liberals haven't, have, uh, that our liberals have maintained the meritocracy. I think that's, you know, it, Put it this way, I don't really believe that's why Trump won or why there's a populist surge, but I do think that as a matter of theoretical argument, that's what our best rebuttal to right-wing populism is uh, egalitarian liberalism. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. I'm, I'm definitely persuaded. And actually going from that point, I mean, in the, in the last couple minutes here, um, I think I read you sort of expressing some skepticism about like a lot of the internal and obviously external critiques of the way that liberalism in America and like, you know, um, the way you, you guys use liberal to mean left of center um, in America is now dominated by what people call wokeness or whatever. Right. And like that's the big boogeyman. Weirdos, you know. But I guess, you know. But I guess I'm curious, like, because it seems like you're a little skeptical of this idea that in order for the left to be successful, you know, like wokeness needs to be eliminated. I mean, maybe I'm, I misinterpreted what I thought I saw you uh, writing about. So I think I'd take a middle ground there. And I, I don't mean to be weaselly, you know, but I actually think that what we should be trying to do is separating the good from the bad and wokeness. Right. I mean, you know, large swaths of what we call identity politics are perfectly in keeping with uh, liberal commitments. And I think we just have to be clearer on what types of wokeness violate those commitments and what don't. We have to also say that a lot of them don't, right? Because otherwise we see the opportunity to say things like, well, you know, Martin Luther King was critical of, of the racist uh, superstructure of society and stuff. We can't give that away. We can't sort of say, oh, the only thing that we're allowed to say is, is that color, you know, is that colorblind equality is the goal. Um, and so that's why I, I really liked Mallory McMorrow's moment. She's a Michigan, for your viewers, Mallory McMorrow is, is the Michigan state senator who, who had a viral moment when she tore into the Republican opposition for depicting her as a groomer. And what she did was she kind of returned to first principles uh, in the wokeness debate, right? She essentially said, you're damn, I'm a white Christian suburban mom, and I absolutely am for equality. Um, and that's because I recognize, uh, you know, the, 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 the humanity of, of, of the, of the non-white and non-Christian uh, students in, in, um, in, in my, my children's school. And what I keep wondering is what the people who are making the anti-woke argument think of that, right? Where does that fit into their their schema, right? I mean, this is someone who went 
in a very big and loud way, raised the salience of, of all these questions about trans and gay rights and, 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 and racial equality. Is that something we don't want? I mean, I think we want, we want Democrats to talk like that, don't we? And, and so I would ask the people who are saying, well, we have to eliminate wokeness. Does that mean Democrats shouldn't speak from deep conviction about racial um, equality and, and the need to protect gay rights and trans rights and so forth? I, I don't see it. I mean, there's got to be a way that we can manage this kind of, you know, admittedly tricky minefield of ideas. We, we, we say what we believe. We say when things, when wokeness and, and certain curricula violate uh, those beliefs. And, and we say, look, we, we understand that you're concerned about all the talk you're hearing about gay and trans rights. And, and you're absolutely right to be concerned about it. You know, these are your children we're talking about. But, you know, here's why we believe this stuff. We, can we say that? It's got to it's got to be doable. I guess maybe really, really last question, if, if we have time. Um you know, as you you're, you observe uh, American political culture, we've been talking about kind of how bad things are getting right now, how polarized it is. And sometimes people make these highfalutin claims we're going to lead to a civil war, which I think probably all three of us are a little bit skeptical about. But I'm curious, what is your realistic worst case scenario? Like, what is a worst case scenario that you think is actually like reasonably imaginable? Oh, I don't know. I think you could see, uh, it, I'm not going to say this is likely at all, right? I think it probably is very unlikely, like a lot of things would have to happen. But I think you could easily see uh, a stolen election in 2024, uh, especially if Republicans win some of these governorships in swing states. Uh, this is a fact that's not widely understood, I think. But all it takes to flip an election is if an election comes down to one swing state, and a Republican governor certifies a fake set of electors in defiance of the popular vote, and a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, which we are likely to have in 2024, counts those votes. Even if the Democrats in the Senate oppose that, they would pretty much stand. You need the courts to do certain things, but I could see that. I could see street violence accompanying it in a stepped-up way. You know, I, I, I also, again, I want to stress that I think those things are unlikely, but I think we should take them seriously as possibilities. All right, chilling. Part Grim to note on. to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 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 good to good to be realistic. All right. Well, thanks so much, Greg. I mean, it's been really good talking to you. Yeah, really appreciate uh, your time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Greg. Uh, it's great to finally talk to you. Uh, not quite one on one, but as close to one on one as we get these days. So. Yeah, was that? Did, do you think Musk? Musk good for Twitter or bad? <laughs> uh, I, I think you know. That's too big a question, maybe. I, I think the jury's out on that. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I, my, I, I think there's a real likelihood that he will turn a blind eye to very virulent forms of right-wing disinformation and, and violent speech. Yeah, I worry about that yeah, too. I think so. All right, thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much. Right. Bye bye.